0: Hey, everybody, can you hear me? I see a thumbs up, which means yes. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the second episode of AM Live. Um, I really appreciate you being here. Hope, hope everyone's weekend is going well. Today, I want to talk about a couple of things and then open it up for comments, questions on any topic uh, that people want to discuss. The first is the ongoing tensions between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. There is talk now of a meeting this week, a a virtual meeting between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin to discuss uh, the threat of war in Ukraine, or at least of escalated war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Okay, I I don't know what that was. Anyway. and uh, and then I also want to give you an update on my Syria reporting. But you know what? Maybe I'll try something different this week. Which is that since we already have callers in the queue, let's see what you want to discuss and uh, and if you have anything to contribute on, on the topic at hand. And uh, we'll see uh, if we can discuss. Well, we'll see what happens. Anyway, so Sal, I'm gonna I'm actually gonna bring you in, and you can uh, share with us what you want to say. And either it'll be on topic or not. But regardless, I will get to the topics at hand. So. I'm bringing you in now.
1: Yeah, so uh, I've been following like a lot of your your uh, coverage of of Russia Gate, uh, how you debunked uh, a, a lot of the, the myths and tropes around it, uh, and you were quite active over there. But I I, I have a question, uh, and, and this could uh, we could either ascribe this to say malice or to some form of stupidity. But uh, around Russian Gate, was it at all ever, in your opinion, uh, used by some as a sledgehammer to prevent Trump from withdrawing the troops in Syria and the threat of impeachment? Basically, uh, you're either on board with this or we're going to vote against you during the impeachment. And that's the noose that they had around his neck.
0: Well, I think it's a great question. I have no direct evidence of it, but I think it's totally fair to speculate. I mean, you had in Trump somebody who, for the first time at, the, at that level of the presidential campaign, in terms of someone who's a, one of the two candidates for a major party in the U.S., talking about the, questioning the need for NATO and criticizing the fact that the U.S. pays for it, and talking about what happened in Syria, where the U.S. ended up being on the same side as al-Qaeda. Uh, Trump called that out, whereas that was something Hillary Clinton uh, supported very vocally. I mean, there's the the infamous email from Jake Sullivan, who's now the National Security Advisor, to Hillary Clinton in early 2012, where he wrote, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And of course, that was a private email, but it later came out publicly. And um, so Trump was saying things that no other major politician of that stature had ever said. Um, And then he got elected. And I don't know to what extent Trump was sincere about the things he was saying, talking about renting in foreign wars. I mean, if you look at his policy in Iran, he was very belligerent there, T- tore up the Iran nuclear deal, assassinated Qasem Soleimani. But when it comes to Syria and Libya, he was criticizing those interventions. And I think it's totally fair to speculate that, yes, um, Russia Gate, which definitely involved some very um, duplicitous activities by members of the national security state was a way to constrain him in that um, in that domain, and certainly with Russia too. He was talking about cooperation with Russia, getting along with Russia, and you know Russia is a foe to cold warriors who not only see Russia in cold war terms, but also conflict with Russia is very profitable to a small sector of the population that profits off of war. So. I don't know if there's direct evidence of uh, the fact that Russiagate was used to undermine Trump, but I think you can look at what actually happened and make a very plausible case for that. So I think it's a totally fair thing to speculate.
1: Okay. Well, thanks. And uh, do you have any thoughts on what's going on in in terms of the the arming of terrorists in Ethiopia against the Ethiopian government? Uh, Do you have any thoughts there? There's some video, Zoom video that got leaked that basically... Prove that thesis, uh, and, and just like they're trying to manufacture consent for aggression uh, ar- around the the Black Sea and around Russia, it seems like they're doing the same thing in Ethiopia.
0: Yes, there was a leaked uh, audio or video recording of a Zoom call with some U.S. diplomats, and I believe it was Jeff Pierce. I think his name is is the reporter who got a hold of this. And, um, I will link to, I will put his article in the show notes after this, this is posted. And yeah, um, there's an article there about, you know, experts from the West, including, uh, a U.S. official talking about the need to arm the TPLF, which is the uh, rebel faction that's currently fighting the government. And I think, um, I don't have any more information than what Jeff Pierce reported, his article is called Ethiopia, the West diplomats meet in secret to decide how to help the TPLF. I'll, I'll include this link in the show notes after this is posted. And I'll also plug an interview I did with an Ethiopian-American journalist who is of Tigrayan de- uh, descent, but she's been very vocal in, in pushing back against the um, – the narratives that are being given to us in the West about what's going on in Ethiopia. And I'm certainly not an expert, so I don't feel comfortable commenting more than that, but I will link to that too. And I'll also recommend it since I talked about the U S being on the same side as Al Qaeda. I did an interview at my show pushback recently with David McCloskey. He's a former analyst with the CIA whose whose beat at the CIA was Syria in the early years of the dirty war. And I asked him, you know, was there any internal debate over the fact that the U S was siding with and supplying weapons to allies of Al-Qaeda in Syria and being on the same side of Al-Qaeda in Syria. And it was a very, I think, interesting exchange. He, um, he said there wasn't much debate. Uh, he, I think he, was, he made clear that it was uncomfortable, but it's just extraordinary that the U.S. decided it was more important to overthrow a government that's allied with you know, Iran and, Hez- and Hezbollah and look the other way with the fact that the people we were doing that with was literally Al-Qaeda. It's a pretty extraordinary case, and um, I'll talk more about Siri later on when I discuss some of the newest uh, reporting I have on the OPCW. Thanks, Sal. Thank you. All right, Eric, I'm going to let you in, and then, and then we'll get back to the topics uh, that I laid out for tonight.
2: Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Oh, well, it's a
3: great pleasure and honor to uh, be picked by you. Uh, I've been following your work for a long time, as well as the work of uh, your family. Um, And I guess I haven't been paying too close attention to this news about um, Russians amassing at the, uh, I guess, uh, Ukrainian borders. And perhaps this is also being tied into some general fear of China and Taiwan. And uh, I can imagine some national security state person really thinking that, you know, oh, we are just days away from them both doing that at the same time. You know, China and Russia are both going to take their territories and we're going to be left holding the bag. Um, and that's why we need to start a World War III preemptively, <laughs> you know, or something, some national security narrative like that. But actually, I haven't followed too closely on those details. So uh, maybe I'm maybe that's me teeing you up a little. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, so look, it's uh, people are talking as if this is the most serious threat of armed conflict between European countries since the Second World War, and that's a, a view shared across the spectrum. It's Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, who's a big hawk on Russia, says this, but I, I put this to Richard Sakwa, who's a um, scholar on Russia in, in the United Kingdom, and I just interviewed him for my show Pushback. We just published it today, and he also agrees that things are very dangerous right now with uh, Russian troops massing on the border. Now I'm going to talk a bit about why some of the claim, some of the U S intelligence claims about that might be a bit overblown, but let me just give a background to what's going on right now between U uh, S Russia and Ukraine. So there's a lot of history. What I think is most relevant is the following. And I'm not an expert on Ukraine or Russia by any means, but I have studied it. I have studied it a little bit. And especially cause I do think there's a huge connection to Russia Gate. Russiagate, I think, really fueled a lot of what is going on right now. was very connected to it. Basically, there are two main events in the background to this. The first one is 2008. Actually, you know what? Three. I'm going to say three. The end of the Cold War uh, at the end of the 1980s. What happened? So as a condition for the Soviet Union letting uh, East and West Germany reunify, the U.S. makes a promise to Gorbachev, which basically says that you know, we will not expand NATO. One more inch to the east, so we will not bring NATO closer to what will be Russia's borders um, if, uh, if the Soviet Union falls and Germany reunites. That was immediately violated uh, by everyone, by Bill Clinton and all subsequent presidents. And fast forward to 2008, you have a Bucharest declaration, a NATO meeting in Bucharest, where they basically say that Ukraine, which is on Russia's border, has historic ties to Russia. It was once a part of the Soviet Union. Um, Crimea was given to Ukraine by the Soviet Union back in the 20th century. And this NATO commitment says that Ukraine will one day be a part of NATO. That's the Bucharest declaration. And that, I think, frames the conflict that we're still seeing today, 13 years later. Because fast forward to 2014, and you have a, you have a, a, a coup in, in Ukraine. Now, in the U.S., it's called the Democratic Revolution. But there is a large segment of Ukrainian society that sees it as a coup, where basically you had a president, Yanukovych, uh, who he's portrayed in the U.S. as being pro-Russian. But really what he was was he was just trying to get along with everybody. He was trying to make a, a trade deal uh, with the EU, but also trying to make a deal with Russia. Because Russia, after all, is Ukraine's neighbor, and there's a large segment of the population that identifies with Russia, speaks Russian, has family in Russia. Um, And essentially what happened was the U.S. used the the protests in Maidan, which were legitimate protests over corruption. They used these protests to basically spark a coup, and it became very violent. Um, There was uh, the Maidan shootings where snipers attacked protesters. That was blamed on Yanukovych's side. But the more evidence that comes out, I think you can pin it very much on the uh, people behind the the coup in Ukraine. And soon, with the backing of the US, uh, Victoria Nuland and John McCain, who flew to Ukraine to cheer on the protest, Yanukovych was ousted and he fled to Russia. There was an effort at at mediation uh, with the EU. The US basically sabotaged that. And then you have uh, this conflict in the east of ukraine the donbass fighting the west and russia back in the east putin of course seized crimea and that was seen as um you know this illegal annexation which technically it was it is illegal but what gets overlooked in the u.s is the russian perspective which was that for them here they had the u.s backing a coup in their neighboring country of Ukraine, and the people behind the coup were talking about NATO membership once again, and they were talking even about putting U.S. forces inside Crimea, where the U.S. has a naval station. And for Putin, and I think honestly for any Russian leader, I think Alexei Navalny would have done the exact same thing: reacted by seizing Crimea and annexing it. And then you have in the years since this long-running proxy battle between uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Russian-backed forces in the east and the U.S.-backed uh, government in Kiev. And there was supposed to be this resolution in something called the Minsk Accords, but that hasn't happened. That was negotiated from a place of real weakness for Ukraine. They were basically losing very badly. And so they made a lot of concessions, including they agreed to give some autonomy to uh, the Donbass region, where where which Russia is backing and very much does not identify with the Western-backed government in in kiev the reason that's important for russia is because russia wants to have basically a uh foothold in ukraine so that it can have veto power over nato membership for ukraine if 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 there is an autonomous region like the donbass then that could essentially veto any decision to join nato which is very important to russia and russia is obviously a is signal that it's not going to commit anymore or it's not going to respect anymore whatever the U.S. tells it in terms of – so if the U.S. really even say we're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO, for Russia, that doesn't matter anymore. They actually need uh, a bigger assurance of that based on the experience of the, Soviet, of the collapse of the Soviet Union where the U.S. kept expanding NATO up to Russia's borders. And so that's, I think, the background that's going on now. And Russia has been massing tens of thousands of troops on Ukraine's borders. There's a good article at Moon of Alabama, which I'll link to after this, Explaining why the, these claims about you know 100, 175,000 Russian troops potentially being there by early next year and launching an, launching an invasion, why that's overblown. He go, the, the, Moon of, the Moon of Alabama article goes through that. But regardless, what is widely accepted is that what the Russian aim is, Russia doesn't want to annex more Ukrainian territory. It's acknowledged that essentially Russia's aim is to ensure that Ukraine stays neutral that it basically follows a Finland model and stays out of NATO and it's just very interesting to see how that is treated in the US media i mean imagine if russia was uh, backing forces in mexico and talking about bringing uh, mexico into a new version of, of the warsaw pact i mean the us would of course would never tolerate that but when russia says that we want to keep our neighbor neutral uh, that is somehow seen as a as a threat to the U.S. So let me read you from the Washington Post. This article just came out a few days ago based on US intelligence claims that Russia is threatening an invasion of Ukraine. And they talk about what Russia wants. They say this. Uh, if the, the Russian plan could be to force Ukrainian troops to fight on multiple fronts, seeking not so much territory, but rather a capitulation by Kiev and its Western backers. That results in the security guarantees that Putin wants. But what are those security guarantees? The, the, same, the same article in The Washington Post says this. Putin has demanded that the U.S. and its allies provide signed assurances, excluding any expansion of NATO to include Ukraine and Georgia, and limiting military activity near Russia's borders, most notably in and, and around Ukraine. And that, to me, really says it all about what this conflict is about. It's not about defending Ukraine. It's about people in Washington, especially an influential place like the Atlantic Council, that refuse to see Ukraine as just a, a, a country that's, whether you like it or not, it's on Russia's borders. And for the sake of everybody, for the sake of world peace, it's better to have Russia's neighbor, which is so close to Ukraine and, and, and where you, Russia and Ukraine have such deep ties. It's better to see that neutral. For them, it's, they're choosing profits, I think, for military equipment and just their cold war chauvinist mindset over peace. And I think it's very, very dangerous. And that's the context that I think is missing right now from the current discussions over Russia and Ukraine and the U S and we have some more callers lined up, but Erica, I don't know if you want to comment on that.
3: Well, it's interesting to think how um, you know, just to imagine what the settlement could be, if you could somehow neutralize the U S role in this situation and then how Ukraine and Russia could work it out amongst themselves, because it's very, you know, I think Russia has that term for Americans, what is it, non-agreement capable or something. It's They don't, it's very, you know, as as you said with the expansion of NATO, and uh, uh, that, uh, you know, well, they shouldn't have believed us because we weren't telling the truth. (laughs) Well, okay, Um, it's hard to figure out where you stand. And the other interesting facet of that is that, um, at the time, you know, when the Warsaw Pact was dissolved and it was deciding, well, why do we need, we need NATO? One of the options that was considered, it um, sounds silly today to think about it, was, to, but was to allow Russia to join it. Because after all, what is its purpose if there is no Soviet Union, uh, you know, to, other than to oppose the Soviet Union? And since Russia isn't the Soviet Union anymore, I mean, that was floated. Um, but it would seem to me that... Um, uh, what you have is it's, it's you know, it's, these wars have their own momentum. And of course, they always come down to money. War is a racket. And you're selling a lot of weapons um, by keeping the, it going. Um, but I will say that I think, you know, it's, it's very important. You did acknowledge this, which is that, um, yeah, technically under international law, you cannot have, you know, the aggressive transfers of territories uh, in this way. Um, in particular, even if you have the local population, this is something you studied in international law. You know, I went to um, GW law school. Um, so one of the things we studied is, you know, um, that uh, for secession movements, you know, for them to have legitimacy, you have to have the consent of all parties involved. So they, don't, they obviously they don't have the consent of the Ukrainian government to cede that territory. And if that is a bad precedent to set, if it seemed like Russia was building off that precedent and. You know, taking what, you know, of course, the Hitler model, which is, you know, just to constantly keep asking for more and more and more um, that that would be that's kind of, you know, that's I mean, and that's, of course, the paradigm that perhaps the Hawks want to see Putin as is the new Hitler and um, as Russia is the, the the Chai comms are the new Nazis. And um, but if you if you think if you take a neutral view of it, um, it's hard to imagine because yeah. at the same time, you don't want to ever say that Ukraine has to be under the thumb of Russia. It has to have its own sovereignty and independence. At the same time, it's kind of silly to think that you could ever, you know, divorce their trade relationship. I mean, the fact that they share a border, you know, obviously Russia is going to be their number one trading partner under any circumstance. Um, uh, similar issues with, you know, China and its neighbors. Um, but I think, um, but at the same time, you know, I don't like to see troops amassing on borders and I don't like to think that things are coming like this. Um, and it is, again, I guess it's just, you know, maybe you call me a dreamer because I bring up, you know, uh, Russia <laughs> joining uh, NATO, but even just to think, you know, if Brazil was mediating this conflict as opposed to the U.S., you know, claiming to mediate, um, uh, what, what, what could they come up with? Because it really seems to me that, um uh, uh you know, there have come been conflicts all throughout history that have been resolved, you know, even worse than this one. But, of course, the problem is, is you have someone, the U.S., claiming to be a neutral actor, as with, you know, the Palestine settlement or any, any other issue.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a counter-argument to, to my argument, which is that basically, uh, it, which is that why should Russia or, or anyone else be able to dictate to Ukraine what alliances they can join or not? you know uh it th- that should be up to ukraine and you know countries do should have that right to join alliances that they want to but the problem is in this case when there's such a you know dangerous first of all uh pot- like such a dangerous risk of what that could entail where you have on russia's border uh a country that's now a member of a hostile military alliance where if there's a military conflict the other members of that alliance are duty bound to come to that country's defense. I mean, you you could talk about the end of the planet. We're talking about the world's two top nuclear armed powers. And again, I just go back to if Mexico wanted to join a a military pact with Russia, there's just no way the U.S. would allow that. There's just absolutely no way. So I I do think there's, you know, I agree with you, there's going to have to be some compromise here. Um, I thought Minsk was, you know, had accomplished that, but it seems like basically Uh, Ukraine just doesn't want to abide by it and is hoping for U.S. support to get better terms for Minsk. And one thing they are doing now, which is interesting, is that basically it it, it looks like they really want to use the Nord Stream 2 pipeline for leverage. This is the gas pipeline that Trump tried to stop, by the way, which is ironic because he was, of course, accused of being Russia's puppet. But, But Trump tried to stop the construction of this gas pipeline that would link uh, Russia to Germany and the rest of Europe. Biden came in and dropped that because it was just becoming impossible because Germany really wanted it. But now there's been this strange delay in certification in Germany uh, where it's on, it's on pause, basically. And I have to wonder if the U.S. was somehow involved in that. And I wonder, and this is a point raised uh, on a recent episode of the podcast uh, 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 radio, uh, War Nerd, the War Nerd, and, which is that basically if Ukraine and U.S. are using the delay in Nord Stream 2 and using the importance of Nord Stream 2 to Russia as potential leverage to get better terms for Minsk. And that's why maybe we're hearing now about the threat of of war, that it's really about that. So we'll see. But um, it's certainly it's a dangerous time. Okay, and Sean,
2: you are up next.
4: Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yeah, thanks for bringing up the uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline I believe it's called because that that was a particularly maddening <laughs> kind of thing that was going on during the Trump, Trump administration where everyone accused him of being beholden to Russia and then at the same time whenever he took that action uh, to try to get Europe off of gas of, off of Russian energy everyone said he's weakening our alliances. <laughs> so <laughs> Exactly. Really exactly. Just like yeah. yeah, I lost a few hairs over that. Um But uh, one thing that just a quick comment, one thing that I think rarely gets mentioned when it comes to Ukraine and Russian relations is that uh, Russia has a strategic interest in the Crimean Peninsula because this is where their Black Sea fleet is located. They have no access to the Mediterranean through uh, what's it called? Uh, The Straits of Gibraltar and uh, Istanbul, basically. Uh, So it's it's they've had that naval base for over. Uh, since before world war ii and uh it's one of those things that never gets mentioned i would say that basically the analogy of if russia were you know entering into an alliance and amassing on mexican borders is one thing but a better analog would probably be hawaii because it's that level of strategic importance so to their navy anyway um <clears throat> but what i was actually uh, calling to ask about is uh your familiarity with this uh, event that took place in Syria, because I know that people have been afraid of uh, Russian and American conflict in the Ukraine, but in Syria, we actually did have direct conflict. And this is something that wasn't widely reported, but uh, about 500 Russian mercenaries um, that were part of a group that would basically be the Russian equivalent of Blackwater were uh, staging an attack on some special operations forces in Syria and this went all the way up the chain of command. And you can tell this because Mattis testified to this in the Senate. Um, and the order either came from Mattis or Trump, but they were annihilated. I mean, the, it was pretty ruthless. Like Apache helicopters came in and just killed probably about 500 Russian mercenaries. I'm curious if you're aware of this, what do you think about it, and if you've ever done follow up on it. So thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, that is a event that's still shrouded in mystery. I haven't done, I haven't looked much into it, but of course it's, it is so important. There is a, um, there is a history of this, of basically at times when there's the threat, quote unquote, of the U S and Russia working together, that something terrible happens. uh, And, and the U S opens fire on the Russian side. It happened in Syria a few times back in 2016, Obama kind of, Gave up on the dirty war um, after you know uh, five years of trying to overthrow Assad. You realize that this has f- fueled the rise of Al Qaeda and ISIS in Syria. So he announced a, a plan to cooperate with Russia in going after jihadist forces in Syria. And the Pentagon uh, or, or the U.S. R- army in in uh, Syria launched a attack on Syrian government forces. The first ever time I believe that this has happened. And This was September 2016, and the U.S. claimed that this, you know, that, that, that this was an error, but there was re- reporting by Gareth Porter, I remember, and a few other places too that just basically showed that this looked pretty suspicious and that in his view, in Gareth Porter's view, this was an em- attempt by the Pentagon to sabotage U.S.-Russia cooperation in Syria. And it certainly, it had that intended effect because Russia pulled out um, of a, a plan to cooperate. So in the case of the Wagner attack, which I believe was... Correct me if I'm wrong, it was early it was early on during the Trump administration. Was it 2017?
4: It's a good question. Uh, Mattis was still there, so it was before 2019, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: So that also comes at a time when you know Trump came in talking about cooperating with Russia, talking about ending the dirty war on Syria, talking even about recognizing um or certainly talking about abandoning the dirty war and, and ending support for the rebels. And you know, recognizing that Assad had won the war, and you go back to 2017, not long after that, where Trump is saying all this stuff comes the Khan Sheikhoun chemical attack, and that's where uh, Syria is accused of killing people with chemical weapons in Khan Sheikhoun, and Trump immediately responded by bombing Syria, and out the window when any talk of cooperation with the U.S. and Russia in uh, Syria, and any talk of sort of rolling back the dirty war. And uh, you know, I always wonder. If Russiagate wasn't happening, would Trump have done the same thing? Because recall, this is April 2017. So, you know, this the, the steel dossier has come out a few months before. Cable news is constantly calling Trump a Russian agent. There's, you know, calls growing for a special counsel. And after Trump bombed Syria, one of his sons, I think Eric Trump, said, See, this is proof he's not a Russian puppet. It was almost as if they were like, Trump was motivated by trying to prove to people that he was like tough enough on Russia, quote unquote. And uh, I wonder, you know, we'll never know. It's a counterfactual, but if Russiagate hadn't happened, would, would things have been different?
4: Yeah, that was one of the interesting aspects of that attack was that I never, with the airstrike. Yeah. uh, uh, That's one thing I, I take it at your word that Donald Trump said, see, we're not, you know, beholden to Putin, but uh, with that particular attack on Russian mercenaries, it was never mentioned. So anyway, thanks a lot.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Thank you.
2: Okay. Um,
0: Eric, you're back in line. If that is. I'll put you up again.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, It's me again.
3: I don't want to take away from Tim, but I guess it's uh, you brought up Victoria Newland. Uh, remember when she said fuck the eu uh
0: yes of course
3: (laughs) so i like to call her victoria fuck the eu newland
0: yeah for people who don't know that's this was a a really crazy moment during the height of the ukraine crisis back in 2014 and there's a leaked phone call obviously russia uh, must have i'm sure i'm sure it was russia that that intercepted this phone call basically tapped a call that Victoria Nuland was having with the U S ambassador to Ukraine at the time. And, and they plot. They're basically, it's an amazing phone call. It just shows how powerful the U S is and what contempt they have for their partners and for the countries that they're meddling in. Basically Victoria Nuland and the U S ambassador to Ukraine are picking who is going to be the next president of Ukraine. They're talking about different candidates say one guy is not experienced enough. Another guy is, you know, he's okay. And they they picked the person who ended up being installed. I mean that's and and as part of that, Victoria Nuland says, "Fuck the EU." It's it's it, the calls out there on the, on the internet. It's worth seeing. It's such a great window into they, they how were, uh, the US they were they were
3: picking the Ukrainian cabinet the way uh, the banks got to pick Obama's cabinet. Like,
0: <laughs> exactly. Like, who exactly. Do they pick? <laughs> exactly yeah exactly
3: um, the interesting thing with her is I just always need to riff on this which is people talk about this like red brown alliance that's supposedly going to form between Tucker Carlson and Glenn Greenwald or whatever it's like people really need to get that the real you know red brown alliance is people like Victoria Newland who's married to Robert Kagan and it's the neoconservatives and the neoliberals at the State Department who have power now who are doing fascistic things now such as deciding you know who another country's leaders uh get to be um that's the real thing and i think of it mostly because people talk left to right and and they want to say well left to right doesn't work anymore i kind of think left to right still works if you think okay there's left authoritarian left libertarian <laughs> so the left authoritarians and the right authoritarians are united at the state department um <laughs> and the right libertarians and the left libertarians we have to unite against war i mean what else is there it's always politics of strange bedfellows.
0: uh I can very much attest to that it 's strange a lot of places where I used to be very welcome I used to you know work for work with no my kind of point of view isn 't welcome there anymore instead the kind of the point of view of people like victoria newland is is what 's embraced and uh, I blame Russiagate for that i mean R- Russiagate really caused so many uh, had so so many terrible consequences and, and that 's one of them and it 's interesting the power they have so victoria newland it 's a great example now she 's back in the biden white house she 's a back in, in the State Department under Biden. She uh, recently visited Russia. And, um, and look who's not there. There was a controversy earlier this year where Biden was going to appoint to the National Security Council a guy named Matthew rojanski You know, very credentialed, you know, been around D.C. for a long time, director of the Wilson Centers, Keenan Institute, you know, like total establishment guy. But he was considered by the Victoria Newland types at the Atlanta Council to be too soft on Russia, even though, of course, he's not soft at all. He's like, you know, but uh, he was he was too soft for them. So Biden immediately backed down, and it just shows the power in Washington still of the pro war lobby on every issue, um, especially when it comes to Ukraine. Like the people at the Atlanta Council have a huge amount of influence, and uh, they just don't tolerate anyone who mildly dissents. It's um. It's uh, depressing. I think
3: we need to start calling them like Atlantisists or something like that. <laughs> Because I think there's a certain ideology that they have. And um, you talk about Russiagate. Russiagate is part and parcel, I think, of a general trend in our society that is also sort of mediated by the, you know, the consent manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, to sort of make discourse impossible on politics, to depoliticize politics, but also to make it so that you don't have political arguments. You find out somebody has the wrong belief on a certain issue and then you just don't consider their belief on any other issue. And it's not just RussiaGate. It's for example, I think about, I really think about how Obama gave some speech at the UN where he was like, and uh, it's wrong to, uh, to say bad things to women on the internet and to bully women online harassment. It's like, yeah, buddy, what do you think happens to a woman's body when she gets hit by a hellfire missile? It's the same thing that happens to a man's body or a child's body. When you murder those, you know, it's, it's this thing where they can, they can say that they are, you know, they're Atlanticists. They, uh, they support all these enlightened values and um, the interpersonally, they would never be, they would never, you know, it's like uh, they would never, like with Hillary Clinton, oh, she's she's always giving out these great Christmas cards or these thank you notes. It's like, well, first of all, she has an employee who does that. Like, she has somebody who works for her who does that. But also, it's like, yeah, if you could meet Hillary in real life, you would find out she's very warm and personal. It's like, well, yeah, but that's any person. I mean, you know, that's, okay, that's not what you how you judge a leader or a politician. You judge, you know, them by their actions in politics. So uh, I guess what i 'm saying there is that it is this atlantisist way of thinking where you don 't really think of the, you don 't think of the foreigners as people, really. The only people who are people are the ones who are have this refined um, refined you know uh, i guess bourgeois morality you could call it and um, and at the same time they 're also trying to consciously or unconsciously import that same kind of judgment of systems and of controls from the imperial outer co- outer layers into the imperial core, and you think about this new "quote unquote" war on domestic terror, and and the people who say that nine um, eleven was was you know not listen nine eleven was bad. I think we can all agree nine eleven was bad, but uh, January sixth that was even worse. And it's like I even had uh, law professors, you know, at my school say that, and I'm like, well, not literally, right? Like I'm trying to say, like not literally, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, And that's another aspect we've lost is the word, the our grip on the meaning of the word literally. <laughs> but that's the whole I other I, to I
0: totally agree. And same thing with Russiagate. Russiagate was also compared to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. You know, Hillary Clinton...
3: They literally yeah, attacked
0: us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I guess to have that, as you say, to have that imperial supremacist view of the world, you have to constantly make yourself the victim and feel as if you're under attack because what else can possibly justify you continually... And aggressively meddling elsewhere, you know, it's it's the only thing you can do to justify your own hegemony and your own. And I'll give you
3: another example is, you know, the actress Jessica Chastain.
0: I've heard of her. Um, well, yeah. she,
3: she's from Zero Dark Thirty, you know, most famously. And right. so she is another example of this Atlanticist philosophy, how it filters into Hollywood. Because first of all, Zero Dark Thirty, well, obviously, you've got the Pentagon involvement in that movie. And, um, but yeah. I'll give you the biggest irony with this one, um, going back to this Imperials feminism that I'm also trying to draw out, I guess, is um, she is part of this woke signaling campaign where she says um, that writers should not use rape as a plot device for female characters. She, so it's this hashtag, I forget what it is, but not your plot device, I think is what it is. So that's her hashtag. And first of all, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Because, like, for example, Jodie Foster and the Accused, I mean, that's a serious film about a serious topic. But that's, you would cancel that? I don't get it. But the most important piece of hypocrisy is that the movie she was in, Zero Dark Thirty, she played a character who was ordering the sexual torture of uh, Muslims <laughs> and she was celebrated for it. And there's, it's, there's no irony hmm. to that. I mean, we've lost sense on our grip of on irony because she is literally in real life uh, s- s- celebrating this woman who ordered the sexual torture. And uh, at the same time, she's saying uh, writer, uh, writers, if you if you put a bad plot device in your writing, um, that's cancelable, I guess. Uh, so it's, it's <laughs> this, this culture's is
0: We agree on that. Eric, thanks a lot.
2: Okay, Tim. Tim, if you can hear me, you have to unmute unmute yourself.
0: Oh, we lost him. Okay. All right. So that's Ukraine. That's what I have to say about Ukraine. We can talk more about it if anybody else wants to weigh in. And let me just give an update on the OPCW. So... As most of you probably know, I've been covering the scandal for a while now at the OPCW, this cover-up of their own investigation. There was a, this alleged chemical attack in a Syrian town called Douma in April 2018, and the U.S., Britain, and France bombed Syria, uh, accusing the Syrian government of being guilty. I, about a year later, the OPCW came out with, it, with a report after doing a, a, you know 11-month investigation And the report aligned with the U.S. narrative that Syria was guilty. It said there are reasonable grounds to believe that a chemical attack occurred. And the contents of the report basically suggested that the Syrian government was the culprit. But then we got a bunch of leaks showing that the original team that went to Syria did not reach that conclusion at all. They actually found that there was no evidence of a chemical attack, but their findings were doctored and censored. So. This has been playing out in public after these leaks emerged. And the latest is a few things. So there was a conference of state parties last week at the OPCW where Fernando Arias, the director general, he was reappointed to a, a new term. So there was a vote of confidence in him by a sufficient number of states. And he's been the face of the cover-up. He's basically been lying about the inspectors, the, the dissident inspectors who challenged the cover-up of their investigation. And he's given all these fake excuses as to why he can't address their claims. He's saying he's claimed he doesn't have the authority, which is just a lie. And he's also said that he can't even bring it to a group of independent experts within the OPCW because they also don't have the authority, which also is a lie. And I've written, all, I've written about that at the gray zone. So up at the gray zone now though, I'm doing a new series of reports on this about just giving more details based on some new leaks and OPCW sources on how the investigation was compromised The first part of the report was about uh, a toxicology assessment that was done early on in the Duma probe where basically a a group of German toxicologists who were consulted by the OPCW, actually a group of of officials at the OPCW flew out to Germany to meet with them. They concluded, based on looking at the footage of what happened in Duma and photographs, that all the symptoms of the victims were – or the main symptoms of the victims, especially frothing, this frothing they had were completely inconsistent with chlorine gas, that there was no way that there was chlorine gas. And that was very significant, not just for for that finding, but also because there was no traces at all of nerve agents at the scene. So some of the symptoms were consistent with nerve agents, but the OPCW could not find any trace whatsoever of nerve agents at the scene. So if there was no evidence of chlorine gas, if the symptoms are inconsistent with chlorine gas and there's no evidence of another alternative chemical, then that is further evidence that this thing was staged. And that's a very inconvenient conclusion. And the OPCW essentially censored that conclusion. It was in the original report by the team, but the final report put out publicly in March 2019. The original report, by the way, was not released. It was kept from the public. But, but the final report said that it contained none of these findings. It was basically censored. So that's what I discussed in the first part of my new series. And in this new part of the series, I actually reveal that a whole other area of investigation, a very important one, was actually deliberately shunned. And that is forensic pathology. That's the study of how people are killed and the cause of it. And I haven't published this yet, but this will come out either tonight or tomorrow at the Gray Zone. And what I report is that very early on, the OPCW received an opportunity to consult with a forensic pathologist at a prominent nearby center called the Netherlands Forensic Institute. It's based nearby the OPCW in The Hague. So this wouldn't even have required going to flying to Germany. They could have just, you know, gone nearby to consult with this forensic pathologist. But this opportunity, it was, it was rejected by a senior OPCW official, someone who was involved in the cover-up. And um, the original team, after this lost opportunity, was disappointed. But what they did was they included in their report a call for forensic pathologist to be consulted in further work that was to be done. But this was essentially ignored. So what I'm saying here in this article, and and it goes into further detail, which I won't get into here. But basically, by not taking up forensic pathology, by rejecting this opportunity to consult with one, and then ignoring the recommendation that this be be that this be pursued the LPCW denied itself a very critical opportunity to potentially find out some really key information including what time these people died which would be a very uh, important thing to find out so it wasn't just a matter of censoring the team's findings as has been amply documented but also choosing not to learn some key important details now i can't guarantee of course that do uh, working with a forensic pathologist and you know engaging in forensic pathology would have resulted in some damning findings. But I do, what I do know is that by refusing to do it, the OPCW completely foreclosed the opportunity. So that is the aspect of the cover-up that I'm reporting on in my new article, which comes out very soon, probably tonight, if not that, then tomorrow morning. And it just, uh, look, it's been a really fascinating story for me to cover, and there's, there's a lot more to come. And uh, I continue to be amazed that this story has not yet entered the mainstream. There was just this big expose in the New York Times. It was a great piece of reporting talking about the cover up by the U.S. military of a massacre in Syria where they essentially killed 80 civilians and covered it up uh, for more than two years. This was this incident was in 2019. We only found out about it now and we only found out because some whistleblowers came forward. But at least that story made the Times. In the case of the OPCW story, the OPCW cover up, you have whistleblowers, you have documents, and it's the only time the New York Times has mentioned it was in passing, and it's never been acknowledged in the Washington Post. And it's still one of these stories that have been vetoed for now from the mainstream, and that's why you know you have to get it from from me at the Gray Zone. But it's like I almost feel guilty because it really shouldn't be there. This this is a explosive story that should get a lot more. Attention. So I see that Tim is back in the queue. So I will try to let you in. Um, and a reminder to unmute your microphone.
2: All right, that does not seem to be working. Uh, Eric, you are back in line, though, so I will bring you back in.
3: Hey, thanks. I, I, t- I hate to take away from Tim time, but I think he's having a little technical difficulty. So in any case, um, uh, so I, I wanted to touch on perhaps, I think you and I have a mutual nemesis. Uh, have, you, have you heard of this guy by the name of Ryan Grimm? Uh, I, find him, uh, I find him disagreeable. Uh.
0: (laughs) I have I have heard of Ryan And you know Ryan and I You might have seen on Twitter We We uh, Get in spats sometimes But I like Ryan I think he's a great reporter He works very hard Um, I don't agree with him on everything But you know That's That's That comes with the territory Of being in this Media Crazy media uh, Especially Especially lefty media World And um Yeah look Ryan's taking positions I don't agree with You know I thought he was too harsh On force the vote And um I wish The Intercept, you know, as I was just talking about, I wish The Intercept would cover the OPCW leaks. They, they covered Duma before the leaks came out, and they promoted the Trump administration's narrative that Syria was guilty of a chemical attack. But since the leaks from the OPCW came out in May 2019, so more than two years ago, The Intercept does not acknowledge their existence. And I just think that's like, you know, it's outrageous. And I, I hope that changes. And Ryan who's an actual reporter, I, I think, is our best hope for that because he does journalism, and he said he even once to me on Twitter that he would look into it, but, you know. Um, I,
3: wouldn't, I wouldn't hold your breath on that one. I don't want to take up too much time on this guy, but I, I have to say I think you're being a little too nice to him. Uh, but, <laughs> but let's hear what Tim has to say.
0: <laughs> okay. Tim, you've been elevated to speaker status, so hopefully this works.
5: Can, can you hear yes. me? Oh amazing okay um, yeah sorry i 'm totally new to this, as I guess we all are, um, and i 'm totally mystified by the interface here but um, so first thing I want to say uh, i 'm late to this conversation. second thing I want to say is the interview with Richard Sakwa was amazing i read oh thanks, I read his book early on in that whole thing, and it yeah. was such a help to try. Yeah. Make any sense of what on earth was going on there, and it was i found it i found it enormously alarming at the time um, you know I have a background I was in Czechoslovakia in the nineteen you know late eighties early nineties and uh, I, you know i then um, kind of Got a bit lost in family life, and I looked over my son's shoulder and watched what was going on in me, and just thought that is completely fucked up. And yeah. everything I've learned since that moment has completely vindicated that that impression. And the best person that I've heard talk about that or write about it, because I read Richard Sokwa's book on it, um, was Richard Sokwa. So thank God you fucking elevated him to. Someone <laughs> who, anyway. Um, the, uh, yeah, so what, what do I want to say? You know, you have been so good at d- the details of how messed up this is, and your patience with playing it out and letting it kind of run itself out and and watching it and, and just basically saying, no, this is even more absurd, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if there was one thing I could ask you, um, it would be, like, if you zoomed way out, what do you think Russiagate means, right? Like, what do you th- think it means that they can foist the most absurd narrative and get away with it that I've seen in my adult life, you know, and, and does that make any sense
0: or? You know, sure. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's one of those profound questions. I mean, what does it say about our society? that something so stupid. and something so toxic and dangerous was elevated to that level. I mean, this, this is what dominated us politics for many years and we're still feeling the impact now. Um, It says that, you know, our elites hate democracy. They have real contempt for it on all sides, I think. Uh, But in this case, especially on the liberal side where they lost, they got humiliated, the Trump freestyled this campaign, Hillary Clinton, everyone thought she was gonna win. Including me by the way. I mean, I yeah. it's I, I didn't see Trump I didn't, I didn't see Trump coming. Yeah, and, me too. and instead of just <laughs> grappling with what their own role was in this in the dysfunctional system that created Trump, they, you know, uh used the national security state and um they used the media and yeah. It, it's and it's it yeah.
2: Can
3: can I point out an irony there as well? Because yeah, um, well, well, you know what is um, they double down as you say on this idea that the problem was too much democracy. Well, actually, if we had had enough democracy, Bernie Sanders would have won the Democratic primary exactly. beaten Trump. Yeah. As well as even if we had a real democracy, um, Hillary would have been president because she got more votes. Yep. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, and the idea yep. there as well is just that. Um, I never say Trump was democratically elected. You know, there's, I say he was constitutionally elected and he was, you could say, fairly elected, although I believe they did some stuff there with the Republican secretaries of state. But the idea that the problem is, is too you know what, it was too much democracy. Um, there's a movie called The Giver based on the book called The Giver, but the, Meryl Streep's character, what she says is when people have the right to choose, they choose wrong. And uh, you know what? That's what they believe unironically, I think, at this point.
5: Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's ironic to and I and I don't mean to raise the the whole specter of kind of um Russian <laughs> kind of, you know, the the bogeyman or the or the infiltrator or whatever, but you know, we talk about Russian, you know, managed democracy without irony, you know, and you know, when you talk about Sechin or you know, whoever Putin's behind and you just you you just the mind boggles at the idea of what if not managed, is this fucking democracy. You know, it's really... You know funny. what else
3: boggles my mind is I was born 1990, okay, so I'm turning 31 this month, and I remember being young enough to think that the Cold War was over, right? But as it turns out, my lifetime is yeah, pretty yeah. much uh, a little interstitial in between the, the
5: Cold <laughs> War.
0: Yep, 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 yep. No, no,
5: I, I mean, I, you know, a lot of this stuff, I, I feel... A lot of my motivation about this is just my embarrassment for realize, realizing how incredibly fucking naive I was when I thought you know the end of the Cold War meant something right because the the new Cold war just followed like marching right behind it without any um, without <laughs> any break, and yet that yep. hasn 't been recognized in in our thinking or anything else, like the irony of that i mean I swear you know Aaron you have the best coen brothers script ever right
2: <laughs>
5: you know like it's so funny it's so it's so deeply and darkly funny what we've been going through and there's so few people that get the
0: joke right like it's really funny that i agree it's it, it was such a lost. I, i've been saying for many years that russia gave such a lost opportunity for comedy like Late night you know they yeah. should' have been making fun of it, totally. but instead they were instead they yeah. were making fun of Trump for being gay with Putin. I mean that was the level of it, yeah, it's, exactly. and that's why I say Russiagate kind of ruined everything because it just like it, it it cheapened everything you know and it turned everyone into <laughs> you know cold war chauvinists and just and, and conspiracy fanatics. It was yeah. so um degrading and uh look, a, a person I really miss is stephen cohen the the late russia scholar who died a year oh, ago totally and Like if
5: there was one thing that I could ask everyone to watch is Stephen Cohen's talk about Putin on that cruise where it's just like, have you guys lost your minds? Because (laughs) this is the record of this guy, right? Like it it bears no resemblance to anything. Anyone fucking believes in the West. It's completely delusional,
0: dangerous and dumb. Right. Yeah. It's, but, but you know what, you know, I'm a good example of how propagandized our society can be. I, I first met Stephen Cohen when I was at Democracy Now, and I interviewed him um, once, I think in twenty fourteen during the Ukraine crisis. And I, you know, I was at Democracy Now, which is like the, you know a, a top progressive show, and I thought I was very yeah. adversarial and skeptical. But I just, I was consuming, you know, the New York Times, Western media, and I just kind of bought the conventional line that like Putin had launched this war on Ukraine. You know, to because Ukraine to like destroy this democratic revolution in Ukraine, and and uh, and I so there's a clip of me interviewing Stephen Cohen because I used to be able to co-host Democracy Now! once a week, and so one day you know his he came on and that was my day, and I I was like challenging him, you know, on Ukraine, and of course his answer like where he talked he talked about like <laughs> Putin's actual motivations, and that's you know he totally set me straight, and then it that set me on the path to really understanding what what this new cold war is because like you guys I thought it was kind of over it didn't it didn't make sense to think that there still was this cold war going on but um so yeah it's uh, it's we just live in such a beautifully uh efficient uh propaganda system it works so well that you know there's no one telling anyone what to think but it's just the saturation of the establishment line it it gets to everybody it's very hard to pierce through that
3: well, it reminds me of um, Austin Powers when he's uh, unfrozen from the warm liquid goo phase. And uh, they say to him, the Cold War is over. We won. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, yay, capitalism.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: There's another, there's a quote, there's a quote that I would love to hear your comment on, Aaron, um, that Raymond Governe has stood behind. Uh, you know, he knows a woman who was in the room in the national security Oh, I'm going to mess up exactly where it was said, but I think, but it was basically, I think it's from William Colby where he basically said, we'll know when our, um, when our disinformation campaign is successful, when everything the American people believe is false. Have you heard that? (laughs) (laughs)
0: I've heard, amazing, I heard Ray say, yes, I have. I have heard him say, yes, yes, yes. I, uh, yeah. But, I mean, I, I just think that is
5: such a beautiful piece of, I mean, I, I butchered it, obviously, but I think that's such a beautiful piece of manageries speaking, right? Because <laughs> it, it's such a beautiful encapsulation of the idea that, like, look, the only thing that matters here is our institution's interests, Right.
0: Exactly, yes. and, and it yes.
5: just—it just literally like bulldozes over every value you would ever have as a human being, like literally, <laughs> like like I, I've just basically raised you know us to the level of God, and we will make everyone think whatever the fuck we want, and that's and when we, when we've done that, we've succeeded, right? Like it's right
3: up there with Carl Rove and rejecting the judicial... Absolutely. That's right.
0: That's right. That's right.
5: And I mean, I I actually, you know, it sounds a little nutty, but that's that quote has stuck with me ever since I read it because I was just so struck by how perverse it is. And yet it's it's said in this bland managerial speak that it that it kind of like I can imagine sitting around a table and nodding, you know. <laughs> but, I actually think it might be exactly what the fuck is going on right
0: like- yeah yeah it seems it seems like a very plausible thing for a you know top bureaucrat to say it's because it's certainly it follows exactly what they try to do, which is make us believe false things i mean that 's all they tell us is <laughs> false things, so why wouldn't they articulate that when they 're speaking? In private, and, and Ray, you know, Ray, Ray was in the room of uh, yeah. some very with some very powerful people. I mean, he he briefed the he briefed, I believe Reagan and Bush, um, doing the presidential daily briefings when he was at the CIA. So you know, I uh, I certainly believe him when he says it. It's a that it, that's an amazing quote. Another great quote, which is from Richard Sakwa, which is um, I think relevant to the, the topic today, which is where he says. Uh, he says, NATO exists, he says, there's a fateful geographical paradox. NATO exists to manage the risks yep. cre- excuse me, created by its existence. NATO exists to manage the risks created by its existence. I think that's such a, a great quote. It's so true. Like, why? Yeah. It's, it's the
5: classic self-licking ice cream, right? Yeah. If, you, if yeah. you're a bureaucrat, cat, what do you want? What did they say right after 9-11? We will dine off this for decades
0: right yes yeah and war is a racket yes Yes, it is okay if there are any more callers who want to call in um now's a chance to jump in otherwise we are going to wrap it up because it's been an hour and i'm actually seeing that glenn greenwald has a podcast going at the exact same time as me which uh i'm going to have to rectify in the future so that i'm not (laughs) competing with glenn because that's a that makes me an even tougher draw so but thank you for everyone who joined um you, you know, you are the diehards and I, I really, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Uh, and um yeah, so I'm going to in the links to this episode. I will post all the things we discussed, including I'm going to add to that list, the Stephen Cohen speech on the nation cruise that Tim mentioned. And um yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in. I really, really appreciate it. And it's uh it's a real thrill for me to be able to interact with people rather than just, you know, Sit in front of my computer and type and you know getting fights on twitter or speaking into a microphone um at, you know uh, for a podcast this is a really really cool thing so thank you i really appreciate you taking part in it so i hope everyone's weekend's going hope everyone's weekend is going well and i hope to see you for the next episode which probably will be on the exact same day next week just hopefully not at the same time as glenn greenwell um okay thanks everybody
2: thanks aaron